on radio. Right on radio. Narrating the end of the world. The end of the world. This news just in. We are your news now. Providing the play-by-play for the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right on, right on, right on. Live right. Live right. In the real world. Right on radio. Get the news. You're listening to Right On Radio. Hey everyone, thanks for being here. Welcome to Right On Radio. My name is Jeff. If you're new to the show, thank you for being here. Uh, please remember to hit the like button and subscribe and do all that kind of stuff. But listen, I've got a good one for you today. If you've been following along, you know, we've talked about, uh, well, the history of the people that are in the conflict right now in the Middle East and some of the origins and some of the understanding. And I just want to point out again, I'm not against any people in this world. If you want to be a Kazarian, be a Kazarian. If you want to be a Muslim, be a Muslim. If you want to be a Buddhist, be a Buddhist. God bless you. In fact, my God says to love thy neighbor. So, you know, that's that's my position. But when lies are being told out there and we are being, there's been a major, major deception, particularly on America, I want to address some of the things that have happened. And it's good to learn from actual history and to see how things have progressed. So tonight I'm going to have a special presentation for you. This is a classic, folks. And and often I think, you know, uh, I wish people could see all the things that I've seen. And perhaps you have seen this because it's not new. Certainly, uh, it features Bill Cooper. So it does go back quite a ways. And then there's an independent filmmaker, which is really interesting in the end. So it's kind of a collage of different things, but all addressing the same subject. And I believe it will paint a picture for you and particularly in the infiltration of America, because you have to remember, if America falls, the world goes. America is the last stand right now. So there's been a tremendous amount of focus on America in the last couple hundred years uh, by the globalists. And when you look at the information that's here today, I also want you to think of Places like, or the groups like the uh, Group of Rome, uh, the Council for Foreign Relations, the uh, Council for National Policy, which is the Judeo-Christian organization. And by the way, if you don't remember or if it doesn't come to mind, when you hear the word Judeo-Christian, it means I'm pretending to be a Christian, but I'm actually in allegiance to Israel. And that is the Israel that is the geography, not the people of the Bible. So having said that, I'm going to be playing this in just a little bit. Um, I do have one thing, if you'll beg my indulgence, that I was in a bit of a crazy mood. Uh, we do have a bit of a special going on. So I called Kristen up. Uh, 
and we did this. Hey, it's that time of year again, and you may or may not be celebrating this pagan holiday called Christmas, but even if you are not, your pagan friends are, so you need to be thoughtful of them because you are called to love your neighbor, and I am here to tell you one of the most thoughtful things you can do, and the reason I'm wearing this is because I'm talking mushrooms, and yes, coffee and cookies are your greatest immunity support and here with more information is my good friend Kristen Ludlow. <laughs> Thanks Jeff you know you never would ever think that coffees and cookies could give you your greatest immunity support but we definitely have that available to you now so you can not only get the food and the support that your immune system needs but you could also enjoy a delicious fresh cup of coffee and some delicious cookies especially if you have little ones that don't like taking vitamins or any of that stuff. You don't want to give them those gummies that have all those synthetics, all that synthetic ingredients and stuff in it. You can actually give them a cookie and then they can also get that immune support, especially when you see what's happening around schools right now. You give your kids immune support. <laughs> That's right. And, and listen for the gifts of your family and everything else. And you got to remember when you buy the coffee, you're actually buying two products. You're buying the mushroom that is good for immunity support and you're buying a premium coffee at the same time. But the reason I sell this is because of the mushroom in particular, but it is delicious. Absolutely. And you can't go wrong. You know, everyone's drinking coffee every day anyway. So why not get a better tasting, smoother, fresher coffee that's also going to support your body and give you what you need to be able be able to go out there and function optimally. And for a limited time, we have a package at ror.petclub247.com where you can save some money by buying not only the coffee, but you get a couple packages of these delicious cookies with it. Yeah, and that's really important, especially because, like you said, it is a giving season where people are focused on others and wanting to give people gifts. And so why not give them the gift of health? I think that's probably the most valuable gift that you can possibly give anybody that you care about. So these holiday gift packs are not only a way for you to take advantage of you know, getting some goodness into your body, but also to give others that gift of health as well in a way that they're going to definitely enjoy. That's right. So ror.petclub247.com. And the final word is these are absolutely delicious. <laughs> One last show note before we get into this uh, special presentation. I just want you to know that uh, for the next couple weeks, at least until, you know, the end of uh, 2023, there's a couple things that I really intended to cover, like COP28, but my heart really wasn't in covering it because it's, uh, I don't want to repeat the stuff they're repeating. And quite honestly, I don't want to focus on demons. I think most of you get what's going on there. Um, is it significant? Yeah, I think it probably is. Uh, but we don't need to repeat their stuff uh, time after time. And it really creates a lot of fear, to be honest. And uh, I don't want to create fear. But we do need to be aware, so I will cover it in the future. And uh, 
lastly, just until the end of the year, I'm going to be doing more things like this and doing some presentations rather than doing a ton of prep because honestly, there's a couple really big projects that I'm working on for ROR, uh, but they take time to do them with excellence. And I do want to have them out in the beginning of next year. Uh, probably won't be the first week of January, that's for sure. Uh, but I but I am working on some other stuff. And, you know, to be creative, you know, to be creative and put together unique shows that I try to do and uh, and the unique content that I'm working on, it just, I can't, I can't do both at the same time. Uh, you're, my head space is in just in completely different places with these things. They're polar opposites. So uh, if you'll bear with me, I'm, but I'm going to show you some really great content in the meantime. And uh, without further ado, the Benaya, the Berean Benaya Masonic ADL. This gets wild, folks. Listen to this carefully. And, and again, remind, remember of all these other spring-loaded things that came up, like the CNP and the Council for Foreign Relations and everything else, and that actually birthed out the uh, WEF. Yeah, well, this is this is the roots, folks. Watch this. It can take away everything you have. It can destroy your family and make your children's future uncertain. It has hurt more, damaged more, killed more than anything mankind has ever known. What is it? It's the B'nai B'rith, enlightening America and the world. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically, opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweigh the dangers which are cited to justify it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. 
What was Kennedy's uh, occasion of his attack? Commander of the Commander of It is extremely dangerous what I'm embarking upon simply because so many people who have attempted to reveal this history previously have been killed in the process of doing it. I have no fear and I will finish what I start or someone will because it needs to be done. Tonight I begin to narrate to you a special report of the Executive Intelligence Review entitled The Ugly Truth About the ADL. Now I want you to understand something. I am not talking about Jews. I am talking about a branch of the Illuminati, the control structure that is bringing one world government into fruition, destroying the sovereignty of nations, and many, many other things. As you will see, ladies and gentlemen, the ADL does not represent the Jewish people, but instead is using them and is manipulating them so that they innocently, as many of you have done throughout your life innocently, are helping to bring about the destruction of the sovereignty of individual nations, the destruction of individual creator-endowed constitutionally guaranteed rights and the formation of a one-world totalitarian socialist government. I want it clearly understood that the hour of the time has stated on many, many occasions that we oppose racism of any kind in any form by anyone. What you're going to discover is that the ADL, while calling many, many people anti-Semitic, are themselves one of the greatest racist groups that has ever existed upon the face of this earth. On April 14, 1865, the day President Abraham Lincoln was shot, will live forever, ladies and gentlemen, as a day of infamy for American patriots and lovers of freedom all over the world. But for the leadership of the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry and the Order of B'nai B'rith and its 20th century secret police arm, the Anti-Defamation League, April 14, 1865, is a day that will be long remembered for a very different reason. The B'nai B'rith, a pivotal player in the British Freemasonic plot to destroy the Union, was implicated in Lincoln's assassination, something that you've never been taught. That fact does not square very well with its long cultivated but totally unwarranted reputation as a Jewish social service organization and a champion of civil rights. For that reason, B'nai B'rith and the ADL have gone to great lengths, ladies and gentlemen, to bury that history and much, much more. Simon Wolfe, 1835 to 1923, was the Washington, D.C. 
lawyer for the Order of B'nai B'rith during the entire period of the United States Civil War. He would later head the International Order of B'nai B'rith for many years. In 1862, Wolfe was arrested by Lafayette C. Baker, the chief of detectives for the city of Washington, D.C., and later Lincoln's chief of the United States Secret Service on charges that Wolfe was involved in spying and blockade running on behalf of the Confederacy. Baker arrested Wolfe, who was the attorney representing a number of Jews accused of spying for the South on the grounds that he was part of a conspiratorial organization working on behalf of the secessionist cause behind the lines in the nation's capital. The conspiratorial organization named by Baker was the B'nai B'rith. Both Baker and United States General Ulysses S. Grant targeted the order of B'nai B'rith as a Confederate spy agency. Upon taking command of the Western Front in 1862, General Grant issued Order Number 11, which expelled all Jews from the military district within 24 hours of its implementation. U.S. Grant was no anti-Semite, ladies and gentlemen. He was reacting to the activities of B'nai B'rith and leading Confederates like Judah P. Benjamin. Lincoln, however, cognizant of the need to avoid blanket attacks against religious or ethnic groups, rescinded the order, which was the proper thing to do, for all Jews are not members of B'nai B'rith, and B'nai B'rith was not solely at guilt. The Civil War was actually engineered and brought about by British intelligence through their arm of the Illuminati in the United States, headed by Albert Pike, the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry, whose headquarters at that time was in Charleston, South Carolina. In 1987, B'nai B'rith authorized biography of Simon Wolfe by Esther L. Panitz offered the following highly suggestive albeit incomplete description of Wolfe's personal relationship with President Lincoln's assassin, John Wilkes Booth. Bear in mind, folks, that this biography, written on the basis of B'nai B'rith's archives, written on the basis of B'nai B'rith's own archives, paints Wolfe in the most favorable of lights. The mere fact that the author had to include Wolfe's links to Booth and Wolfe's earlier arrest as an alleged Confederate spy and blockade runner implies that the actual story is far uglier. I quote from the history of the B'nai B'rith. Wolfe's concern for culture first expressed itself in the formation of a private club devoted to the arts and humanities and frequented by young men avid for learning. Were pride and ambitious his only motives in seeking the intellectual life? Clearly, Wolf hoped that if he and his friends would devote themselves to the pursuit of learning, they would deflect the prejudicial statements of their Christian neighbors. Wolf was upset that terms such as money changers, cotton traders, and clothes dealers had become words of reproach. Locally, the group's theatrical productions received a good press. Wolf, who would often play the ghost in Hamlet or Shylock in The Merchant of Venice, bore an uncanny resemblance to John Wilkes Booth. Lincoln's assassin. Earlier in Cleveland, Booth had joined Wolfe and Piaxoto in dramatic performances. Years afterward, Wolfe remembered 
that he had met Booth once again at the Willard Hotel on the morning of the day Lincoln was shot. There at the bar, Booth explained that Senator John P. Hale's daughter had just rejected his marriage proposal. Wolf attributed Lincoln's murder to this personal tragedy in Booth's own life. Wolf also recalled that once he sat for a picture entitled, quote, the assassination of President Lincoln, end quote. In his own book, ladies and gentlemen, entitled Presidents I Have Known, Wolf says that he and his longtime acquaintance, John Wilkes Booth, did some drinking together at the Willard Hotel on the day Booth shot Lincoln. Wolf's and a second leading B'nai B'rith figure, Benjamin Pixoto's dealings with John Wilkes Booth were hardly cultural. Nor could Wolf have possibly believed that Abraham Lincoln was killed because of John Wilkes Booth's unrequited love affair. Even John Hinckley, the would-be assassin of President Ronald Reagan, was declared insane when he tried to peddle the line that he had tried to kill Ronald Reagan due to an unfulfilled fantasy love affair with actress Jodie Foster. To understand the circumstances under which B'nai B'rith's Washington, D.C. leader and one of its founding members were circumstantially tied to the Lincoln assassination conspiracy and explicitly linked to the secessionist insurrection against the Union, it is necessary to look briefly at the circumstances under which the Order of B'nai B'rith was founded in 1843. Following the American Revolution, the British monarchy and its East India Company, colonists' apparatus never for a moment abandoned their commitment to reconquer the lost colonies in North America. Although the military effort at reconquest in the War of 1812 failed, other efforts to seed the United States with British agents, some drawn from the ranks of anti-Republican Tories, who were permitted to retain their citizenship and property in America under the terms of the Treaty of Paris of 1783 were more successful. In 1801, the Tory faction of United States Freemasonry, the grouping of Freemasons who had sided with England during the American Revolution, opened up shop as the Grand Council of the Princes of Jerusalem of the Mother Supreme Council of the Knights Commander of the House of the Temple of Solomon of the 33rd degree of the ancient and accepted order of the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry in the United States. This United States-based British Freemasonic Lodge was chartered in Charleston, South Carolina. The members of this British-led secret society would direct the Confederate secessionist insurrection a half-century later and other Scottish Rite members would be among the founders of the B'nai B'rith. They, too, would be leading Confederates. Apart from the esoteric mission of spreading an explicitly anti-Christian form of Roman pagan worship and occultism among the early generations of American citizens, the Charleston Lodge also sought to build up a network of pro-British merchants, spies, and politicians in both the North and the South, who would one day play a pivotal role in the reconquest. Many of these early Masons became wealthy through their business dealings with the British East India Company and the Dutch West India Company in both the cotton and the slave trade. Among the founding members of the Charleston Scottish Rite Lodge were many prominent Jews, including Isaac de Costa, Moses Cohen, Israel de Lieben, 
Dr. Isaac Held, Moses Levy, and Moses Piexoto. Many of these men, ladies and gentlemen, were Sephardic Jews from North Africa or from Spain who had originally settled in the Caribbean and engaged in the early slave trade. These Jewish Masons set up their organizations, which also maintained active liaison to Great Britain's powerful Jewish community. The Hebrew Orphan Aid Society was one such nominally benign group that would produce one of the most rabid secessionist leaders, Judah P. Benjamin. Although today, any reports of the Freemasonic roots and structure of B'nai B'rith are usually greeted with a torrent of allegations of anti-Semitism. Back in the formative years, B'nai B'rith's own magazine, The Menorah, offered the following information about the founders of the group and listened to this very carefully. Quote, their reunions were frequent and several of them being members of existing benevolent societies, especially the Order of Freemasons and Odd Fellows, they finally concluded that a somewhat similar organization, but based upon the Jewish idea, would best obtain their, their uh, object. The Jewish religion has many observances and customs corresponding to the secret societies known to us. The synagogue, for instance, might be compared to a lodge room. It used to be open twice a day. For a Jew desiring to find a friend, they had but to go there and make themselves known by a certain sign and token. The sign consisted of a grip with a full hand and the magical word, Shalom Alakim. The mezuzah on the doorpost was the countersign, Shema Israel, Hear, O Israel, was the password, end quote. Indeed, to this day, all local chapters of the B'nai B'rith are referred to as lodges, a practice borrowed whole cloth from the Scottish Rite. When Moses saw some Jews of this B'nai B'rith type who tried to make their religion into a pagan secret society, he took the calf which they had made and burned it in the fire and ground it into powder. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin, and made them gods of gold. The majority of Jews in America during the first generations following independence were opposed to the idea of a Jewish Freemasonic secret society. Most Jews are ordinary people like all of you listening and don't know anything anymore about what's happening in the world than you do. They are lied to just like you are lied to. They are deceived just like you are deceived, and they are easily manipulated because throughout the history of the world, they have been chosen as the scapegoat, as the enemy. And because of that, they can be easily led by organizations such as B'nai B'rith and the Anti-Defamation League. Israel Joseph Benjamin a noted European Jew in his memoirs, Three Years in America, 1859 to 62, wrote of the B'nai B'rith that, quote, this is a secret society like the Freemasons with passwords and the like, and was quite a new phenomenon for me. Still, I think the existence of such a society not at all necessary, end quote. He was right, ladies and gentlemen. The secret agenda of the B'nai B'rith, like that of the southern jurisdiction of the Scottish Rite, was to destroy the Union and pave the way for reconquest. The ultimate goal, one world totalitarian socialist government.
You see, B'nai B'rith is not the synagogue. B'nai B'rith is not Jews. B'nai B'rith is not Judaism. B'nai B'rith is just another organ under a different name of the ages-old Illuminati who practiced the ancient mystery religion of Babylon in secret. They call themselves the Great White Brotherhood, the Brotherhood of Man, the Illumined Ones. And if you've listened to our series on Mystery Babylon, you know the rest. Two leading B'nai B'rith allied figures would serve as exemplars of the strategy for permanently dividing the Union. One was Judah P. Benjamin and the other August Belmont. Benjamin, who lived from 1811 to 1884, was born in the British West Indies to Sephardic Jewish parents who moved to Charleston, South Carolina in 1927. In 1827, I'm sorry. He was inducted into the Charleston Hebrew Orphan Aid Society, one of the precursors of the B'nai B'rith. After attending Yale College in New Haven, Connecticut, he was forced to drop out under a cloud of scandal. Benjamin surfaced in New Orleans, where he quickly won the patronage of John Slidell. Slidell, a United States senator who would later play a pivotal role in the Confederacy and sponsored the career of August Belmont, who married Slidell's daughter. With Slidell's assistance, Benjamin became a prominent attorney even serving for a period of time in the United States Attorney for New Orleans. Benjamin gained notoriety for covering up the growing terrorist activities of the Scottish Rite-sponsored Knights of the Golden Circle, while serving as the local federal prosecutor. In 1852, Benjamin was elected United States Senator, a post he retained until the outbreak of the Civil War in 1861, when he resigned to serve the Confederacy. Benjamin was the first Confederate Attorney General. He later served as Secretary of War and Secretary of State, ultimately running the Confederate Secret Service on behalf of Confederate President Jefferson Davis. And as the Mossad does today, he used innocent Jews in the North who were opposed to the dissolution of the Union to furnish information to the intelligence arm of the Confederacy. Judah Benjamin escaped to England following the defeat of the Confederate secessionist plot. It was Benjamin's Confederate Secret Service which organized and supervised such figures in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln as John Wilkes Booth and his accomplice, John Surratt. Benjamin was charged with sedition for the Lincoln assassination, although he was never brought to trial due to his protectus status in England. With the help of a leading Rothschild political asset in England, Baron Pollock, Benjamin continued his legal career in London. He never abandoned his commitment to subvert and destroy the American Republic. However, as a wealthy lawyer for the British merchant oligarchs, Judah Benjamin collaborated with other exiled Confederate and Masonic strategists in England, such as James D. Bullock and Robert Toombs. Benjamin's continuing preoccupation with defeating Reconstruction is indicated in letters he wrote back to the United States with complaints such as these. Quote, I have always looked with the utmost dread and distrust 
on the experiment of emancipation so suddenly enforced on the South by the event of the war. God knows how it will all end, end quote. And then he went on to say, quote, the South is kept crushed under Negro rule. I can never consent to go to New Orleans and break my heart witnessing the rule of Negroes and carpetbaggers. Nothing is so abhorrent to me as radicalism, which seeks to elevate the populace into the governing class, end quote. And that indeed is the sympathy of all of those who call themselves illumined. You see, we are all nothing but cattle, stupid animals, and they are the only ones who have truly mature minds, and thus are the only ones with the right to rule. The Ku Klux Klan, none of you were ever taught this, but it's the truth. The Ku Klux Klan, KKK, was founded in Tennessee in the late 1860s by the Southern Scottish Rite leadership under Albert Pike. The KKK drew its membership from the pre-Civil War Knights of the Golden Circle. Judah P. Benjamin's early role in sponsoring and protecting both the Knights of the Golden Circle and the Ku Klux Klan offers a crucial insight into the B'nai B'rith. ADL's later role in fostering the revival of the KKK in the post-World War II period. We shall return to that sordid tale, ladies and gentlemen, later in this series of broadcasts. Another Rothschild and B'nai B'rith ally who enjoyed the political patronage of ARC Confederate John Slidell, August Belmont, was Judah Benjamin's northern counterpart, a private secretary to the British House of Rothschild who arrived in New York City from London in 1837. Belmont rose to the chairmanship of the Democratic Party, a position he held for 20 years. Belmont was a leading advocate of free trade and states' rights, both cornerstones of the British reconquest scheme. Prior to his emergence as a leading figure in the National Democratic Party, Belmont worked closely with the Charleston, South Carolina, B'nai B'rith in fomenting radicalism among Americans' youth. The effort was in this case run directly by the Mother Lodge of the Scottish Rite in England, then under the command of Britain's Prime Minister, Lord Palmerston. At Belmont's behest, Charleston's B'nai B'rith leader, Edwin de Leon, wrote a pamphlet in the early 1850s entitled, The Position and Duties of Young American. De Leon, whose family were slave traders, B'nai B'rith founders, and later leading Confederates, peddled free trade and openly advocated a strong Anglo-American alliance. While by today's standards, the appeal for a strong Anglo-American alliance may seem palatable to some, back in the middle of the 19th century, this was borderline treason. Ladies and gentlemen, the phone is ringing off the wall as the fanatics try to get through to deny this. It is the truth. The original research was done by the Executive Intelligence Review. Kaji has duplicated the research down to the T to make sure that this material is true. And it is absolutely 100% legitimate and historical truth from beginning to end. And that's why the ADL and B'nai B'rith has never sued the Executive Intelligence Review over this report. 
Belmont's Young America members were among the draft rioters and radical abolitionists who disrupted Lincoln's Union War mobilization to the benefit of the Confederacy and England. During the early phase of the Civil War, England tried repeatedly to intervene into the conflict with ceasefire plans that would have ensured the permanent dissolution of the Union. During the Civil War itself, while the majority of American Jews sided with the North, make sure you understand this, folks, so you know that this is not a racist or anti-Semitic program or report. The majority of American Jews sided with the North and fought valiantly to preserve the Union. The B'nai B'rith was predominantly pro-Confederate. Even in New York City, the lodges preached secession. The Baltimore Hebrew congregation, founded by Dutch Jews who made their money in the slave trade, heard sermons by Rabbi Morris Raphael and the following. And he said this, quote, who can blame our brethren of the South for their being inclined to succeed from a society under whose government their ends cannot be attained and whose union is kept together by heavy iron ties of violence and arbitrary force? Who can blame our brethren of the South for succeeding from a society whose government cannot and will not protect property rights and privileges of a great portion of the union? End quote. Following the Civil War, and the assassination of President Lincoln, many of the Jewish slave and cotton traders from the South, typified by the Lehman Brothers, moved to New York City and became prominent in Wall Street banking and stock brokerages. With the defeat of President Lincoln's reconstruction program following his assassination, President Andrew Johnson pardoned the Scottish Rite insurrectionists. Now listen to this closely. President Andrew Johnson pardoned the Scottish Rite insurrectionists, including General Albert Pike, and accepted a rank of 32nd degree in the Southern Jurisdiction Freemasons. That was his reward. Suspected Lincoln assassination plotter Simon Wolfe was also absolved of any criminal culpability for his wartime activities. Only non-Freemasons and non-B'nai B'rith were prosecuted for the crimes they committed during the Civil War. The legacy of British Freemasonic treachery against the Union survived intact, including the B'nai B'rith. Although the slave trade nominally was banned in the United States as a result of Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, a new form of slavery had already been launched by the British East India Company and its Scottish Rite directors, including the same Lord Palmerston who had played so pivotal a role in the secessionist insurrection. The new form of slavery was drugs, opium. Henry Carey, one of the architects of Abraham Lincoln's reconstruction program and a leading proponent of the American system of political economy, warned about Britain's opium war against China and India in his 1853 book, The Slave Trade, Domestic and Foreign. Get the book and read it. He described the trade in, quote, that pernicious drug opium, end quote, as, quote, one of perfect free trade, end quote. Defeated in the secessionist insurrectionist plot, Britain and its fifth column of agents in both the North and the South would eventually regroup around a strategy for running an opium war against the United States. As the reader will learn in later chapters, the B'nai B'rith and its Anti-Defamation League Secret Lodge played a central role in the drugging of America. 
Like a phoenix from the ashes of Sherman's march to the sea, Atlanta sprung forth as the gateway to the New South, attracting a diverse array of businesses and workers to Georgia's capital. One of these workers was former farm girl, 13-year-old Mary Fagan, who had recently been laid off at the National Pencil Company, then managed by 29-year-old Superintendent Leo Frank, a man of German-Jewish descent who grew up in New York, eventually graduating from Cornell University, and traveled throughout Europe to learn the ways of business. Though he'd journeyed south only a few years prior to implement his European lessons, Frank made fast friends within his community, becoming president of the Atlanta chapter of B'nai B'rith which is much like a Masonic society, but strictly for Jewish folks. That was created in New York after the American Revolution. On Saturday, April 26, 1913, on the day of what was once celebrated as Confederate Memorial Day, little Mary Fagan entered the office of her boss, Leo Frank, to collect her pay of $1.20. Frank would be the last known person to see Mary alive. The next day, in the wee hours of morning, Newt Lee, the night watchman, discovered a horrible scene in the basement of the factory, where Mary's brutally beaten body was left atop of a flurry of pencil shavings, with a cord cinched around her neck, her autopsy later revealing she'd been raped. And beside her corpse were two notes describing her murderer, a long, tall black man called the Night Witch, written through Mary's perspective, as though she jotted it down during her final moments. The black night watchman who discovered Mary's body was immediately brought into the police station as a suspect, and police wasted no time in attempting to get a confession out of him, even going as far as firing off a gun next to his head during the interrogation. But that confession never came. More suspects were arrested as pressure mounted to find Mary's killer, but eventually only two suspects remained. The first was Jim Conley, the pencil factory's black janitor who held the lowest status job at the factory but was paid 50% more than white child laborers and held special privilege of never having to punch the clock as granted by Frank and was seen washing red stains out of his shirt while at the factory, which police later determined to be rust. And the second suspect was Leo Frank, the last person to admit seeing Mary alive. Frank quickly hired the best defense team money could buy to prove his innocence in the murder trial that made front page headlines that entire summer. In the courtroom and beyond, lies were told, stories rehashed, true character revealed, and bribes offered. The case began to heat up after Conley admitted that he wasn't illiterate like he originally claimed. And in fact, he swore that Leo Frank paid him to write the murder notes, framing Conley's entire involvement as an accomplice in the murder of Mary Fagan, with Leo Frank as the main suspect. Refusing to be cross-examined unlike the other suspects, Frank's story began to unravel as his accounts of what occurred after Mary left his office started to change with each recollection. Originally, Frank swore that he stayed in his office following Mary's departure after receiving her pay envelope. But later, Frank stated he might have taken an unconscious bathroom break that would have placed him walking past the metal room, the site where Mary was believed to have been murdered and at the suspected time when the attack occurred. Another young worker was called to the witness stand, claiming that she had gone to Frank's office right after Mary left, and Frank wasn't there. She even waited around for a bit, but concluded that Frank had gone home for the day. The character witnesses included a string of female employees who all had the same thing to say about Frank. He was a touchy, leery pervert with a penchant for young girls. So after a drawn-out trial that garnered immense public attention, and claims from the prosecution that alleged bribery and witness tampering from Frank's legal team, the grand jury reached a unanimous verdict. A grand jury which, by the way, 
included Jewish members. They'd all decided that Leo Frank was guilty. After being convicted of murder, the judge sentenced Frank to death by hanging, which was set to be carried out that October. But after Frank's legal team attempted several failed appeals all the way up to the federal level, attorney and Georgia Governor Slayton eventually had Frank's sentence reduced to life in prison. The public response was one of anger, as they believed the justice system had failed the real victim, Mary Fagan, because of under-the-table deals and conflicts of interest, given that Governor Slayton was a partner at the law firm of Frank's defense. On August 16, 1915, a group of about 25 men who called themselves the Knights of Mary Fagan kidnapped Frank from prison and lynched him in Marietta, Georgia, his body facing the direction of the Fagan residence. Though they described themselves as a benevolent organization, by the time Mary Fagan's corpse was six feet under Georgia Clay, Benabrith had already been publicly accused of espionage during the Civil War and implicated in the assassination of President Lincoln, with the goal of subverting and fragmenting America so that it could once again fall under the British crown, as documented by both Gentile and Jewish scholars alike. During the Civil War, agents of B'nai B'rith even worked in cahoots with Confederate General and Sovereign Grand Commander of the Scottish Rite Southern Jurisdiction, the infamous Freemason known as Albert Pike. It was reported that after Leo Frank was found guilty and convicted of murder, he was once again re-elected as president of B'nai B'rith's Atlanta chapter, whose members were adamant in perpetuating the narrative that Frank's fate relied heavily on Conley's testimony the testimony of a proven liar and second-class citizen in the post-Civil War South. And B'nai B'rith even went as far as inscribing in stone that everyone in the courtroom during that sweltering Southern summer, aside from Frank and his defense team, was either bribed, threatened, or fell under one all-encompassing term, an anti-Semite. The same year the Federal Reserve System was created and Americans began paying federal income tax. Leo Frank was convicted of murder, and as a result, Benabrith created the Anti-Defamation League, what would serve as the public relations arm of their benevolent organization, with its original mission statement to stop by appeals to reason and conscience, and if necessary, by appeals to law, the defamation of the Jewish people. As the years watered down the public awareness of the Leo Frank trial, the ADL ramped up their campaign to paint Frank as an innocent man and victim of anti-Semitism. Their efforts stretched across various platforms, publications, docu-series, college curriculums, and music theater productions. One retelling of Frank's story portrayed 13-year-old Mary Fagan as a temptress who all but enjoyed being sexually abused by older men. The ADL highlighted racial tensions in the South during that time, but conveniently left out crucial evidence in key witness accounts that ultimately resulted in Frank's conviction. Even in her last will and testament, Frank's Jewish wife stated that she didn't want to be buried next to him. Was she also practicing anti-Semitism? The ADL has never been shy about their objective. Unless they could obtain an official pardon for Leo Frank from the United States legal system, it very much appeared that the organization was created to protect a pedophile murderer who managed a sweatshop full of children. In 1982, it seemed like the ADL would get exactly what they wanted when Alonzo Mann, in his old age, came forward with a statement. He'd lied in 1913 during his sworn testimony. He corrected the record, saying that on April 26, 1913, 
When he was a 14-year-old office boy at the National Pencil Company, he witnessed Jim Conley carrying the body of Mary Fagan. And when Conley realized he'd been caught, he threatened man's life, saying that if he told anyone, he'd kill him. So 67 years after Frank was lynched, man came clean, which started the process of the ADL petitioning for a pardon. But what the ADL considered a bombshell only confirmed Conley's testimony. He was an accomplice to the murder. An appeal to tribalism would have you believe that an innocent man was lynched for a crime he didn't commit because of anti-Semitism. An appeal to common sense leads you in a different direction. Mary Fagan obviously didn't write her own murder notes. So if Jim Conley was really the one guilty of homicide, then why would he implicate himself in the notes? Isn't it more logical to consider that Conley was probably paid by the real murderer to write those notes in the aftermath of Mary's death, assuring Conley that the physical description of a long, tall black night witch would fit the physical description of Newt Lee, who they both knew would be the one to discover Mary's body the following morning. Pair that common sense explanation with the forensic and circumstantial evidence, character witnesses, and the ever-changing personal testimony that eventually planted Leo Frank at the scene of the crime at the time of Mary's death. And that's how a unanimous guilty verdict was reached. The ADL has been praised for their efforts to protect individuals and groups from bias, discrimination, and hate, which has landed the ADL's education materials in the curriculums of public schools granted them the opportunity to provide training within the police system and given them sway in the boardrooms of media conglomerates and leading technology monopolies like Google, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. The scope of their influence cannot be understated. On the flip side, criticism of the ADL involves them being an anti-Gentile pro-Israel group masquerading as a progressive civil rights organization, which promotes the us versus them narrative that once only consisted of Gentile versus Jew, but has now expanded to men versus women, black versus white, straight versus gay, pretty much any divisive agenda imaginable, the ADL champions, and labels any criticism against the group they claim to protect as hate speech. But the ADL doesn't really protect these groups. It harms them. It exploits them. It teaches them to view themselves as victims of a hostile world. Without victimhood, without racial provocation, they... ADL has no need to exist. So how much of the hatred is real and how much is manufactured? This criticism along with that line of questioning is labeled, you guessed it, anti-Semitism. Being an Israeli Jew, I have never experienced anti-Semitism myself, but it's a phrase that always seems to be in the air. Three words seem to appear over and over again. Holocaust, Nazi, anti-Semitism. Living in a country that was founded to give the Jewish people a safe place to live in, I found this really disturbing. So I decided I wanted to learn more about the subject. Ladies and gentlemen. This is Abe Foxman, the head and face of the Anti-Defamation League. I have been um, lucky to have survived by miracle to show up. Very nice. The ADL is the biggest organization in the world fighting anti-Semitism with a budget of over $70 million a year. 
Abe Foxman has become the symbol of the fight against anti-Semitism in the world today. I thought he might be able to open some doors for me. So I asked him to help me out with my film. Abe Foxman was very welcoming. I think he liked the idea of an Israeli filmmaker taking an interest in anti-Semitism. And he agreed to give me unprecedented access to his organization, which has its headquarters in Manhattan. Foxman introduced me to some of the senior staff at the headquarters. You can talk to him too. Would you say the ADL is like the biggest uh, Jewish organization dealing with anti-Semitism? Oh, yes, yes. In, in the world. Yeah, there's no question about that. Yeah, certainly in the United States, but I would say in the world. We have all of our 27 offices all over the country with their ears to the railroad tracks. It starts with an insult, a denigrating statement, and at the very top, what, it is, what you have is genocide. And in between is every bad thing that can happen to somebody. Yediot Achronot is the most popular and influential newspaper in Israel. I'm curious about the people behind the reports of anti-Semitism I read on a daily basis. I know Noah is over 80 years old and is making sure that the future generation of reporters will be just as committed as he is. The headline in the Israeli paper was quite worrying. I wanted to see how the Anti-Defamation League actually fights anti-Semitism. Where is he? Where is everybody? Where's the secretary? They're coming in now. Thank you. They're going to come in. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Have a seat and say hello. Introduce yourself. Yeah. Joel Levy. Hello, Yoav. Yoav, very nice to meet you. Let me give you a card. Thank you. Okay. No? You don't have to button your... Why not? The working session. Uh, the reason I'm, I'm asked to sit with both of you is... Um, what looks like a spike in uh, anti-Semitic and racist um, activities or, or manifestations. Now, New York seems to be at the center, or at least getting the attention. How, where do you see it? How do you see it? Well, I've had a lot of meetings with the police department and last week with the mayor. 
to talk about this. There is a wave. There's no question about it. I don't know if it's attached to the time of the year. I may be attached to the presidential election. I'm, I, I'm not quite sure why we're saying it here. Do you have enough uh, resources to, to deal with the, all this stuff? No, no, no. We're flooded every day with these things all over the country. It's a very big problem. According to the ADL reports from the last couple of years, the average number of anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. is around 1,500 a year. I'm hoping Joel Levy can help me find a case I'll be able to follow. What I'd like to do is to follow a case. I understand. Yeah. You know, every film is like a drive. Yeah. Once we have like a, a case that we can follow... So that, that would be great. We're going over the fresh data collected over the last couple of weeks to see if there's anything I will be able to film. We have received in the last week or so um, someone who, <clears throat> employment case, someone who um, didn't, didn't uh, wasn't able to take days off for the holiday. Um, someone who, um, is a school teacher and wanted days off for Shavuot, someone who is a nursing student and had some issues with taking time off as well as uh, with taking time off. Um, we also got a phone call from someone who was complaining about a website that had anti-Semitic um, remarks on it. Mm -hmm. uh, someone who was complaining about an article in the newspaper who they thought had anti-Semitic mm -hmm. anti undertones. Um, and... I mean, that seems to be the roundup. And that, that's what we've had in the last two weeks. two weeks. Those are, those are the kinds of incidents that we've had recently. Five in two weeks. So you, you, there's no way to predict. There wasn't anything suitable from the last two weeks. So Joel Levy tries to help me to find a case. What they're looking for is an incident that they might be able, and they will do all the contact work, but an incident they might be able to follow to actually see something that has happened, to go to the site, to talk to people there, to show what has happened, the impact on them, how we interact with all of that, and so on. Assemblyman Hickind has a lot of Jewish voters in Brooklyn, and he suggested a case for me. You know, I had a very interesting case um, just last week. A woman went to a funeral in not too far from here, thousands of people. And she heard a police officer on the phone say something to someone else, something very derogatory about the Jew something to somebody. This woman was at the funeral. She heard this. She was so upset. She wrote me a letter. I, I could show you the letter. And she called me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Is this the only letter? Yeah. Okay. You want me to read part of it to you? Actually, you could look at it. Uh, I overheard a very disturbing conversation that a policeman had on his cell phone. I heard him say very loudly, I wasn't even standing close to him, quote, I'm just finishing this Jewish shit. Sorry for using this kind of language, but this is the exact quote. I was so offended by the vulgar language which is never appropriate, et cetera. And she goes on. I made it that the police officer called the woman. He apologized on the telephone. He can thought it was a good case, but the police wouldn't let the officer go on camera. And the Jewish woman seemed to be satisfied that the policeman had apologized. I went to talk about the situation with Rabbi Hecht, one of the leaders of the Jewish community and commissioner for human rights. 
Many of the anti-Semitic incidents reported by the ADL happen to Orthodox Jews, since they are the easiest to spot. So I was pretty surprised by Rabbi Hecht's response. Um, let me tell you guys. I am suspicious when a guy makes a living from a particular situation. So if there's a particular film crew that make a living from blood, that's right. I'm suspicious every time they show blood. If a guy is uh, created only because of anti-Semitism, I'm nervous about his uh, reports. Are they accurate? He has to create a problem because he needs a job. So you say like, I mean, the ADL is not like a credible organization or? Uh, I, I really can't pass judgment on other organizations. So we'll leave it that way. I'll be politically correct. But, uh, but, but listen, clearly the ADL has been responsible in certain areas to flare up things as much as they've, they've helped. Um, of course, having said that now, I'm on the ADL's uh, blacklist now, so... Uh... An important part of the ADL's work are the international missions, and Foxman decided to allow me to join him. Every year, a few ADL board members and contributors get to join Foxman as he travels to various countries, meeting heads of state, politicians, and other influential people who can help in the fight against anti-Semitism. It's like an organized tour, but apart from visiting museums and other tourist attractions, the chosen ADL members get to join Foxman in taking an active part in the struggle against anti-Semitism. You have to debate what is proportionate uh, when someone attacks you. You are serious people, and you're here for serious business, and you're going to see the Holy Father, and, and everything uh, the ADL does is serious business. The police escort along the way made me realize I was traveling with some pretty important people. Seeing the Pope tomorrow. Uh -huh. How gorgeous. I'm curious about how Mr. Foxman gets to meet all these important people. Why would all these ambassadors, politicians, and heads of state take the time to meet him? It's their perception of the power of the Jewish community, which is one of those signs of the anti-Semitism. It's a very thin line, you know. Uh, they believe we, we are more powerful than we are. I've always said Jews are not as powerful as the Jews think we are, nor as powerful as our enemies think we are, somewhere in between. But um, they do believe, uh, to some extent, that we can make a difference in Washington, and we're not going to convince them otherwise. So how do you fight this sinister, conspiratorial view of Jews without using it? Look, when, when the United Nations comes to its General Assembly, we meet with 40 heads of state, foreign ministers. Why? I think I got it. 
It's like a poker game in which Foxman bluffs the other side into thinking the Jews have more influence and power in Washington than they really have. The downside is that the idea of Jews being so powerful can result in envy, even hate. Foxman has a very close relationship with the Israeli government. Israel relies on Foxman when it comes to issues of anti-Semitism. And being the Jewish state, anti-Semitism is always on the agenda. What we, I wanted to ask you since we met last about the uh, issue of Venezuela, mm-hmm. because uh, there were, I heard voices kind of saying it's not so bad and Latin America is not so bad, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm not convinced. And the question you have is good worse. reason not to be convinced. <coughs> it is getting worse. Right. Um, and little by little, as long as oil money works. I'm told that... Uh, By our experts, it's the only, except for Iran, it's the only government propagated anti-Semitism today around the world. It's a way. Formally. Right. This is First quite within the country and then outside. So are you pressing in any way? We've talked to um, uh, Jesse Jackson. Right. He has a relationship. But um, it's not for camera, but right. there are other plans. We'll talk about it in a minute. The first example of what Foxman is talking about was a meeting with a special advisor to the Ukrainian president Yushenko. The Ukrainian government would like to distance itself from the embrace of the Russians and strengthen its ties with the West, most especially the United States. They believe that the Jews can become their allies in the U.S. Congress. Um, we come to celebrate your democracy. But we also come with mixed feelings. The history of Jewish people in this country is primarily one of tragedy. We would like to see a more active, a more aggressive um, approach to dealing with issues of anti-Semitism. It took a long... Foxman is concerned about the Ukrainian government's comparison of the famine in the Ukraine before World War II with the Holocaust. The one thing... that you need to be sensitive about is not to link it with the Holocaust. Be careful that it not be played as your genocide, our genocide, because that will be counterproductive on all sides. We, of course, uh, respect Holocaust. And uh, I understood your message, and uh, we try to be very, very diplomatic. Here it is. I was impressed by the way Foxman handled the meeting, but it also raised some questions for me. She was kind of uh, pushing him a little bit, huh? She was kind of what? Pushing him. Yes, of course. It's always like that. Yeah. Of course. I wasn't sure how bringing up things that happened over 60 years ago had any relevance to fighting anti-Semitism today. In order to combat it effectively, I think that you have to take responsibility for anything that happened in the past and then 
reach the present and then go forward. With your husband, when you quarrel, sometimes you need to give some slack to get uh, no, what you want. No, no, no. You I bring start? up everything from the past. 50 years, what his mother did. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, that's not, that's not the American Jewish way. <laughs> I don't know about the Israeli Jewish way. Even the guilty. That's yeah, absolutely. We need to play on that guilt. I asked when having a call when whether she give you some slack sometimes to you know to make up, but uh, she said no. I'm always wrong, and she's always right. But wait, do I ever forget anything? In the past? Never, never, never. Suzanne will tell me twenty years ago what I did wrong. If we have an argument now. You know, 20 years you did this. I said, but Suzanne, it was 20 Wait years. Wait a minute. But do you know why? Because he has not stood up and taken responsibility for that behavior. The guilt trip she's giving you, does it help? No. So maybe the guilt trip we give him them is not the right solution. Maybe we should, like, give them some slack and say, okay, let's be friends. Not forget the past, but kind of be a little bit more, uh, you know, moderate. Yeah, you the know guilt, something we happen to. I have to the guilt of the father should not be visited on the guilt of the on the sons, and it's true. Of course, it's true. I agree. It's true. You have to. Yeah. You cannot can. let it go down, but you can't keep playing on it as heavily as some people do. It's got to be moderate. But ADL is like one of the people who plays quite heavily. No, no, we're moderate. No, ADL plays heavily. There is not a speech. I'm feeling. There is not a speech. I'm not talking to her. I'm not talking to her. What is he? What are you doing? Sad or something? I was fortunate. Recently, you know, we spoke about the, the new anti-Semitism, which is very related to Israel. And I've been heard that from Jews outside of Israel saying uh, Israel is the cause that anti-Semitism is now, uh, that we are suffering from anti-Semitism. Well, I, I would say that is nonsense. That comes from insecure Jews. Um, I think um, people use Israel as an excuse to rationalize and legitimize because in many places of the world, anti-Semitism is, is not acceptable. It's not It's not polite, it's not proper. But if you can camouflage it, if you can find a platform of, of a news event, of a political discourse, then you use it. And we find every time there is a conflict in the Middle East between Israel and somebody else, the level of anti-Semitism spikes. Why? Because the anti-Semites come out of their woodwork and now they can express themselves in their anti-Semitism in a in what they consider a legitimate, uh, licensed way. Strangely uh, enough, Foxman and Finkelstein agreed on one thing, which is that most anti-Semitic incidents nowadays fall under the category of new anti-Semitism.
The difference is that Foxman says that anti-Semites found a new target called Israel, to which they could express their anti-Semitism. While Finkelstein believes that saying that is a cynical misuse of the term anti-Semitism. But attacks on the ADL seem to be coming from all directions. Reuters reports that an Israeli-American teenager was found guilty in Israel on Thursday of making about 2,000 hoax bomb threats against Jewish and other institutions in the United States and elsewhere. The defendant has been separately indicted for hate crimes in several U.S. states. There, he was named as 19-year-old Michael Kadar. Listen to a terrorist threatening his own country. The streets of America shall run red with blood. He was a suburban California kid, a lover of heavy metal, who became one of the most wanted men on the planet. The grandson of a Jewish doctor, Adam Perlman, morphed into Adam Gadon, the American mouthpiece of Al-Qaeda. September 11th demonstrated that America is not invincible. He was accused of being the rarest of criminals, a traitor, the first person charged with treason against the U.S. since the World War II era. But even after those charges, Gadan was unrepentant in 2011, urging radicals to attack inside the U.S. Adam Gadan, the so-called American Al-Qaeda who uh, proclaimed himself the media maven, if you will, for Al-Qaeda and was uh, helping to produce a lot of these so-called Al-Qaeda videos that were all over the Internet that made Al-Qaeda look really bad and made the Muslims look bad. Should you fail to comply in full, we will deem it sufficient justification to continue to fight and kill Americans. Come to find out, Adam Gadon's real name was Adam Perlman. And not only was he, in fact, Jewish, he was the grandson of a member of the board of the Anti-Defamation League. And if you've been following the history of the Anti-Defamation League, you will find out they've been very much involved in covertly supporting a lot of these so-called American Nazi movements. In fact, uh, all the way back, just about the time of World War II, there was this scandal where the head of the American Nazi Party, which had a total membership of like six, and yet they were getting all this this press, um, was arrested for embezzling from his sponsors, which turned out to be the ADL. So that kind of blew up in their faces. So anyway, we have Adam Perlman, and he's been going around saying, I'm Al-Qaeda, I'm Al-Qaeda, see, I got a turban on my head, I'm a terrible Muslim. 
got to hate me, got to be afraid of me. And of course, everybody's laughing at him now because we all know who he is. Okay, so they have brought in the understudy. And there is a new American Al-Qaeda named Yosef Al-Khattab. Ooh, big scary name. And they've got a picture of him out there where he's holding all these guns and knives and he's dressed up like a wannabe Rambo. And he's scowling at the camera. And he supposedly has this website with things in it, like pictures of the Statue of Liberty with an axe buried in the back of the head. I mean, very heavy-handed, very over-the-top. There was also a link to a puppet show mocking Danny Pearl's beheading. Take a look. <laughs> You know, just looking more like a, a movie uh, prop than uh, than anything else here. So, uh, as it turns out, this is another fake. His real name is Joseph Cohen. He's a 39-year-old New York City taxi driver, as you mentioned. He, he uh, called himself Yusef Al-Qadab, but he was born Joseph Cohen here in America. He is a Jew. And he is another manufactured front to try and convince Americans that Al-Qaeda is actually here in the United States. This is why we've got to be doing this, uh, doing surveillance on the American people and reading their email and listening to their phone calls and all this stuff because you never know when we're going to get into a situation uh, with the American Al-Qaeda. And it's all a front. It's a fake. He's up there. He, he's, he's there to try and create an enemy that doesn't really exist in order to justify the totalitarian treatment of the American people and to encourage us to go and attack them before they kill us. They're already here on the home front. We've got to go bomb those darned, those gosh darn Muslims because they're, they're infiltrating America and they're, 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 they're ripping tags off of couch cushions and they're causing global warming and we've got to go in the, it's nonsense. It's all war propaganda. Do those reports worry you that Israel's helping wounded Al-Qaeda-aligned fighters? As I said before, in a different context, it's always useful also to deal with your enemies in a humane way. Al-Qaeda, to the best of my recollection, has up to now not attacked Israel. But has attacked your number one ally and protector and sponsor in the United States of America. There is a quote-unquote war on terror being going on for 15 years. This was the same ADL that was instrumental in the creation and deployment of such diverse terrorist groups as the JDL, and yes, ladies and gentlemen, the Ku Klux Klan. Or how can they keep the Jews together in their own created ghettos to further the political aims of Zionism if they don't present the Jews with a common enemy? All the rest of us. It's better to have a Jewish state that is hated by the whole world than an Auschwitz that's loved by it. Mordecai Levy, the leader of the JDL Splinter Group that managed to show up on the doorsteps of Alex Oda and Shirim Subzakov on the eaves of their assassinations, maintained direct and frequent contact with the ADL's fact-finding division head, Erwin Sewell. Just two weeks before the AADC's Washington, D.C. office was blown up on November 29, 1985. An act of terror right here at home in Orange County. Yes, that is the corner office of what used to be the headquarters, as you mentioned, of the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, the 1900 block of 17th Street in Santa Ana, suite number 208. That is all that is left of that suite. Today, the Santa Ana office of the committee was destroyed by a bomb. Audi was killed and seven other people were injured. 
and some fear international terrorism may be taking root here. The man who, who was killed by that blast, Alex O'Day, age 41, married the father of three young daughters. The bomb was powerful enough to shatter glass in several other offices. Investigators have no doubt the bomb was sophisticated and large, at least 30 pounds in weight, and it was meant to kill. Levy had appeared as the featured speaker at a press conference hosted by the Federation of Jewish Organizations of Greater Washington, an umbrella group led by both the ADL and B'nai B'rith to present a list of enemies of the Jewish people. AADC was among the groups listed. On more than one occasion, Levy's provocateur antics nearly exposed the ADL's hand in fomenting domestic violence, ladies and gentlemen, and here's the truth of how these people operate, and here's the truth of anti-Semitism in America, and here's the truth of swastikas painted on synagogues and on the headstones in Jewish cemeteries. On February the 16th, 1979, Levy, using the pseudonym James Gutman, filed an application with the United States Park Service in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, to obtain permission to hold a rally. Now remember, this is Levy, using the pseudonym James Gutman, a German name. I wonder why he did that. Are you going to find out? The rally permit, ladies and gentlemen, sought by Levy, Levy, a member of the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, supposedly existing for the protection of Jews, the rally permit sought by Levy, a member of the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, supposedly existing for the protection of Jews, the rally permit sought by Levy, also known as Gutman on this occasion, was not filed in the name of the JDL, which he was also a member of, Levy was posing as a leader of the American Nazi Party. Levy was posing as a leader of the American Nazi Party, seeking a permit for a Ku Klux Klan and Nazi Party rally at Independence Hall, the site of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Remember I told you about the Hegelian method of political conflict resolution? Remember I told you there's no such thing as a patriot community. Remember I told you that these people who are bringing about the new world order control both sides of every issue. Indeed, they create the issues. According to the rally permit, Levy was planning a white power rally to show white masses unity of white race and to show the world niggers and Jews are cowards. Among the paraphernalia Levy listed on the application were swastikas, banners, Nazi uniforms, KKK paraphernalia, will burn cross, swastika picket signs saying Hitler was right, gas commie Jews. Verbatim quote. Working out of the Philadelphia offices of the Jewish Defense League, Levy organized local chapters of the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, and neo-Nazi groups to attend the Independence Hall rally. And these racist fools, not knowing that he was a Jewish member of the ADL and the JDL, fell right into line and did his bidding. Like the little puppet jerks that they are. 
In the case of the Trenton, New Jersey Ku Klux Klan, Levy had an inside track. Listen to this. James Rosenberg, also known as Jimmy Mitchell and Jimmy Anderson, a full-time paid employee of the Anti-Defamation League Fact-Finding Division, had successfully infiltrated the local chapter of the Klan. Rosenberg had recently attempted unsuccessfully to get some of the local KKKers to blow up the Trenton headquarters of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP. White Nazis, not in Germany, right here in New York City, up there burning crosses, had a carload of guns ready to come at you like they came at the Jews over in Germany. And when they caught those Nazis, they found that one of them was a Jew. And that Jew went around here talking about Nazis, and some of them are nothing but Nazis themselves. You didn't hear them blow that up in the newspaper, did you? No, they tried to quiet it down. Why, when you find Jews who are Nazis, you really found something. That I think you can find a whole lot of them who are not. Always running around here trying to make you get sympathetic for them. And some of them blue-eyed Jews are going to walk away from here and say that I'm saying something anti-Semitic. Anti-hell. Star of David. Where does that symbol come from? It's never written explicitly in the Bible itself. Is it in the Talmud? Is there a passage in the Bible about that or no? No. Okay. So you're not really sure exactly where that comes from? No. You got me. Because nobody knows, <laughs> yeah, huh? I don't, know. I don't know. I'm not, yeah. Because I know it's called the Star of David. Yeah. Does that have anything to do with David? No, I don't think so. There must be somewhere. I'm, uh, I uh, do not remember exactly what the association was. Okay. You get back to the Masonic fraternity of Freemasonry. Yeah. Their great symbol is G. You'll look at the, the star on the compass, which is a stylized star of David. In fact, they have the entire star of David in many Masonic temples. Why is that? Masonry is a study of the Kabbalah. Albert Pike said in his book, Morals and Dogma, that the, the Kabbalah is the very basis. Without the Kabbalah, we would not have the 33 rituals of the Masonic Lodge. But the God they worship, the great architect, is Moloch. God, star God, called Rimfan or Kiyun. All these were names for Moloch. You took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Rimfan, figures which ye made to worship them. And I will carry you away beyond Babylon. And the star of your God, Rimfan, but ye have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch and Chiyun your images, the star of your God, which ye made to yourselves and Chiyun your images. The star of your God, and Chiyun your images. The star of your God, and Chiyun your images. The star of your God. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. They are not Jews, and their claiming to be Jews is blasphemy. But you claim to have a covenant relationship with the God of righteousness. I say you are so-called Jew, you are Satan. 
masquerading as a covenanted people of God. You must be exposed regardless to the consequences. The synagogue of Satan is not just composed of so-called Jews, it's composed of people of like minds that are under their influence. Listen, I really hope you enjoyed this special presentation. It was packed with information. And just for those of you who are listening on to Podbean and are still here, uh, there was a couple of parts when people were speaking Hebrew language, and they were basically just saying, look, this, they, this is just all manufactured stuff. It's just like, you know, it's just dividing the races. It's BS. In fact, they were saying there's no better time to be a person of Jewish faith in America. Um, and, and that's probably true because you know what? This whole thing, blacks against whites, whites against blacks, against the Asian people, or it's, this is manufactured by the government. I, I, I'm not saying racism does not exist. It does. I think everyone knows, especially, you know, of a previous generation you know, where it was really ingrained in them. But from the baby boomers on down, um, not so much. You know, when I uh, first started right on radio, these taglines just kind of came into my head. There was, it wasn't anything that I thought about for an extensive period of time or anything like that. But, you know, love your God. <laughs> Love your family, love your neighbor as yourself. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Make a difference in the right on radio community. You have a lot of brothers and sisters that want to hear from you. They want you to get involved. Come out to our prayer meetings. Get involved on Telegram, which is really where we join up. You can also follow me on Twitter and stuff like that, but you know, go to Telegram. We have a great community there, and we'd love for you to be part of it. So make a difference in your Right On Radio community. God bless you. I'll see you next time. <laughs>